0: There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, you did your
1: Hello and welcome to the PowerCord Hour podcast episode 4 and I am your host Anthony Merchant thanking you so much for checking us out Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We are, we're just getting into it basically. We're just getting started and I'm having a blast doing it. And uh, I'm very, very excited for tonight's episode because I have played snippets of interviews here on a few of the episodes so far, but this is our very first episode with a guest since starting the podcast. And uh, this is a guy that I've been, it's an interview that I've been waiting to do here for a couple months now. Um, Steve Kravak. Who uh, you may know as a producer and engineer, very, actually, very famous one, I would say. He is a, I mean, including in the punk community, he has been a producer and engineer now for decades. And I mean, some of the most notable bands that he's worked with, I mean, he's produced and engineered for Blink 182, for Less than Jake, MXPX. Um, uh, seven Seconds, Tsunami Bomb, Slick Shoes, Homegrown, uh, Wayne Kramer, and I mean the list goes on and on. I mean he's he's worked with with so many people, and I mean he's he's basically made all the albums that sounded really good. I I didn't really get to mention this in the interview. I kind of forgot to uh, to tell him it, but I mean it's it's very much a compliment that I've always thought of about his producing and uh, and, and his engineering too, really. But what I really like about Steve's stuff is that he cleans up a band. I mean, he primarily works with punk bands. What he does is I feel like he cleans up a band, but without taking away, you know, what makes them them. Like, like it's basically, you know, he still he still puts out and helps put out these punk records, but they sound good. And not in the way where they're too polished or slick or overproduced. He has it, you know what I mean? Like, he just, he knows how to produce in the right way where he makes a band sound good and he brings out their strong points without overdoing it in the studio you know like too many overdubs or too many layers of things like you know just just too much of anything he doesn't do that he knows he knows how to work with a band you know basically really actually play your instruments and i mean make it sound good i think i really think that uh rings true i mean a good example of that um, I mean, MXPX, he uh, he produced and engineered life in general and then slowly going the way of the Buffalo. Of the buffalo and I mean, I think those are the two best sound MXPX records because it sounds more cleaned up than their really, really early, like magnifying plaid stuff, but it's not too polished. I think that's where the band sounds the best. It still sounds like a great punk rock band, but the production sounds good, you know, because there's so many albums that just don't, Lesson Jake would be another one. I mean, that he worked with. He engineered Hello Rockview and then produced and engineered uh, Borders and Boundaries, which, which first of all is the most underrated Lesson Jake record, and it probably is my favorite Lesson Jake record. And uh, I mean, I think those are good examples because with Lesson Jake, you know, Pezcore. While I love the songs on that album. It doesn't sound good. You know what I mean? Like the songs are good, but the album doesn't sound great. And it's, you know, I mean, it's a the production. They didn't have a big budget and, you know, it doesn't – and it kind of shows on there. But it's like I think what Steve does like on those records that he worked on is there's still a loud punk and ska band, but it sounds good, you know, and not, not overly produced, not too slick. It just, you know, it's like perfect. Like I love that's the, his like his way of production and I mean he's he's just a treat to talk to. I mean I've I've been I was thinking of the first thing that I probably listened to that he worked on and that'd be uh Blink-182's Cheshire Cat. Um he engineered that and that would have been the first album that I probably ever heard that he worked on and that would have been like summer 2006 when i was 12 i believe yes i, I did i got that album that was like probably my favorite album that summer and it's so it is it's very cool when you know you look back and it's like oh it's so rad i just had this great conversation with this guy and it's like oh yeah like he's produced all these albums that i love and stuff i mean it's 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 really it's funny when you interview a producer because you you forget those things you know if you talk to someone who's in say one band it's like you know you kind of you know you i mean you still get like oh my god you know it's so and so from you know that that band that you enjoy but it's like what's funny is i've i've interviewed a few producers and you forget all the things that they work on like you'll hear so it's not like oh you just hear that one band you go oh yeah i interviewed the guitarist of that it's like you'll just hear like songs from so many random band stuff you go like Oh, yeah, I think that guy, yeah, like that guy I interviewed, like, oh, he produced that, or he engineered that, or the, he's doing the hand claps in that song, you know, like, it's it's just really funny, and I mean, Steve's like that, because he's just worked with so many people, I mean, he has an amazing, I mean, back catalog of, I mean, bands he's producing, engineering, and even right now, like, when I was talking to him, and you'll hear it in the interview, but he's uh, currently working with Slick Shoes again, he's worked on a few of their albums, and, uh, I mean, he's still doing it, still doing Great, great records. I mean, he produced and engineered the very last 7 Seconds record, and uh, that was a really, really good one. I play stuff off that album a lot on the show. And, uh, I mean, he just does so much. He's a very busy man. And that's why the interview, I was saying, too, that it's uh, been a few months in uh, basically in progress because the album did come out back in uh, October a few months ago. And uh, we were talking about doing an interview, but he's—he is a busy man. He is an extremely busy man, and uh, we finally—we finally got a, a date and time to work now. And uh, I was really happy we did. I mean, it was an absolute treat. And it's probably—I was thinking about it. This might be the longest interview that I've ever done, which is a good thing. I would say um, the longer the better, because that normally means you have things to talk about. And, uh, I mean, I guess unless there's, like, minutes and minutes of dead silence. But thankfully there's none of that on here. But, I mean, this may be the longest interview I've ever done, which, uh, I mean, is absolutely awesome. And it was honestly one of the most fun ones. I mean, this is really – this was, like I'm saying, it was an absolute treat to talk to to him. I mean, it's a guy that I'm a fan of legitimately. You know, I mean, so, like, talking to him, it's not – you know, it's not just me. Obviously I want to help him promote the new record and stuff, but it's also like, oh, like, I just – you know, it's like – I I love like all his work so I'm just genuinely you know interested in asking him questions as as you'll hear you know my my uh, genuine just like Curiosity of things like, you know, oh, was that a p-base on that record that you produced? And, you know, just just things like that, you know, very specific, funny things that I doubt many people are wondering. I mean, maybe I hope I asked some questions in this. If you have like these burning questions, hopefully I got them answered for you in uh, this interview. And I mean, just really, really fun. I can't thank uh, Steve enough. But uh, he did put out the new solo album under Stephen Bradley. And like I said, it is called Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears out now on his record label, Porterhouse Records. Really, really cool record label, which you should go check out. A bunch of really rad bands they assigned to it. And he also does really cool vinyl reissues of some classic punk records from bands like All and X. And uh, gun club, and just a whole bunch of others, really, really good stuff, so check that out and uh yeah, I mean, get the album, get the album right from porterhouse records go go support you when you when you buy it from him, I mean, that's the thing he's he produced it, he wrote the songs, he released it on his record label, you know he got this he got these this vinyl pressed, it's like, so go support him, you know, don't just listen to the songs on Spotify or anything like that it's like. Go buy it from him because you know you're getting it right from the source and the money's going straight to the source. And, I mean, no no guy who deserves it, you know, definitely deserves it more than Steve. Awesome, awesome guy. Just put out a great record. So uh, right now, here is my interview with Steve Kravak, also known as Stephen Bradley, right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, we're talking to musician and producer Steve Kravak, And uh, Steve recently put out his debut solo record under the name Stephen Bradley, and the record is called Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears and is out now on Porterhouse Records. And uh, on top of the new music, I mean, Steve has had an amazing career as a producer and engineer. Um, He's worked with bands such as MXPX, blink One Eighty Two, Seven Seconds, Less Than Jake, and I mean, the list goes on. So we're going to talk about the new album and a whole lot more. So Steve, how are you tonight?
2: I'm doing great, Tony. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So, I mean, I've been really excited to talk to you. I mean, anyone who uh, follows the show, I've, uh, I've played stuff off the new album and uh, talked about it. Definitely my favorite power pop record of 2019. So, I mean, to get, to get into it, I mean, normally I think people do know you as an engineer and producer. Like, what, why now did you put out the solo album? Was there anything that made you put it out, like, now?
2: Well, I had, it's actually something that I had uh, had on my mind for a long time and um, what ended up happening was just like a production career got in <laughs> got in the middle <laughs> of uh, uh, got in the way of like making this record but it's it's been on the back burner for you know a long long time and then um, a couple of years ago a few years ago I had sort of a few fundamental changes in my life and it opened up some some time and some space for me where I could sit down and write and start putting some ideas together and uh sort of had an impetus so i i just went with it and focused and and sort of like had a writing camp in my house and stuff started coming out and it was some stuff would be like, okay. And then some stuff you'd be like, all right, well, that probably needs a little extra work or we'll look at it again or rewrite it or what have you. But the stuff that started coming together was encouraging. And that's when I sort of, sort of felt, okay, well this, you know, idea that you've had in your mind, it's, it's, it's doable and you've got enough ideas to at least get a first record out, you know? And so I just kind of sat my butt down and spent, you know, a couple of months uh, writing, uh, writing the record, writing those songs um, And Once I had the package Sort of together I was like Okay well this kind of tells the story I want to tell I Sort of knew that I was done And it was time to move on to the next part Which was to record it
1: So I mean like going into it Did you have any kind of vision of like the sound Like I mean I think it's it's a very like Power poppy record I mean was that, was that the idea or is that just kind of how the songs Came to be you know did that just naturally Happen as you wrote
2: um, I think that it was, I think it's both. I think that there were designs about like, like I knew there was going to be a couple of songs that kind of mined that early Elvis Costello thing, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I knew there was going to be a song or two that people would go oh, like that might have a Bob mole kind of ring to it, you know, like I knew that was going to happen. But at the same time, as I started piecing the songs together and writing the lyrics came first and then the music, I started piecing the music together afterwards And as as the music started coming together, I would be like, okay, well, yeah, you're going to need something that's kind of like along these lines. You need something that's along these lines. And so I was able to break it up and figure out, okay, well, this is sort of a ballad. You know, this is an upbeat number. This is a mid tempo number and was able to kind of take stock of what I had and and kind of. I guess turn that into what ended up being the the finished product, you know, which is, which is a fairly balanced record. There's about, there's 11 songs. There's about a half, half a dozen of them are mid tempo, three, three of them are up tempo and a couple of them are ballads. Three of them are ballads, you know, something like that. So um, there's, there's, there's a balance to it. And I was definitely conscious of that as I was piecing it together um, that, you know, there'd be enough energy to carry it through. You know, I didn't want to, do write one of those records where you sort of get to the second side side B and you're crashing and burning and there's no energy. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, you know, get me to the finish line kind of thing, you know? Um, but in the end I feel like the compositions, um, sit well together. They sequenced well together. Um, and they kind of give, um, uh, an overview of what I was trying to write. I sort of thinking the other day, like what would happen if I started working on another record, which I've got a few ideas for some new songs. And I I wouldn't see myself diverging to like a completely like different sound or something like that, you know. Um, and I think I would keep it guitar focused and sort of rock and roll focused, which is highly unpo- unpopular right now. Right? Like I'm, I've got the three strikes right. I'm, 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 I'm white. I play guitar. Then I play rock and roll. So like those are all three things that are just not in fashion. I, everything's right just all.
1: against you right now.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, there, but those things aren't in fashion right now. It's just there's not. You know. And so you've kind of got to hope. Well, maybe somebody'll. You know hear something and we'll get something in a film or, you know, on television or something like that to help help break it through, but uh, I will say this, like, people that have been listening to it so far have said that they feel like it's a solid outing, it's a good first record, a good debut, and people have been supportive about the songs and about the lyrics, so, so that's been really, really positive, you know, um, you never know how your work is going to be accepted, it's my first record, I've never really done anything like this before, so that you know, there's some trepidation there, but at the same time, it's like you're you're going to see it through. You're going to you're going to complete the project and complete your idea. Um, and uh, it's been very positive. People have been very uh, supportive.
1: And, you know, I mean, with this record, you have some really like legendary guest musicians on this thing. I mean, you want to talk about some of the people you got to play on Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think that. Um when I went into this, the idea was that I would play the, the core body of instruments, you know, drums, bass, guitar, acoustic, uh, vocals, I would be the core of the band. And then what I would do is I would bring others in to help sort of augment it. First of all, I didn't want to make a record that was really, you know, samey, you know, hmm. and, uh, also I wanted it to have the, uh, um, you know, just input and flair from, from other people that I know, and that i that i trust so pretty much everybody that i invited to play in the record somebody that i have a relationship with through music like we've worked on a record together before or worked in the studio or you know we have some sort of uh, um foundation you know and um so uh you know when i moved to la one of the first people i met was wayne kramer from mc5 and i ended up working on a few of his records out of uh west beach recorders where i was uh Working as an engineer, and so we stayed in touch over the years. And when uh, it came time to making this record, I, I thought to myself, you know, yeah, I need something like I need what he does, you know, which is sort of this sort of outside kind of free jazz influenced, you know, electric rock and roll guitar. It's well, very that's a guy, guy too.
0: Like that's yeah, a guy very too.
2: Unique.
1: Who like doesn't like? There's not many other people who sound like him too. Yeah, he's a very he's kind of a one in the one in a million kind of guy. So I can totally, see what you mean totally by that. It.
2: Yeah, yeah. His phrasing is very different from other people. His tone is very different from other people. Like I was I, I was playing it for uh, uh, this guy, uh, a label associate, that guy that's on my label. And I was playing uh, – he was listening to a couple of tracks. He's like, who played that guitar? Who, had, who was that? Who was that? And I was like, that was Wayne. and And he was like, oh, of course, of course. Like <laughs> – Sounds completely unique, you know, so um, I knew that he would be the right person for the songs that I put him on, you know, and it was sort of the same thing for the other guys. Uh, Kevin Kane, who has played with the band Grapes of Wrath, who are longtime Canadian power pop band, were signed to Capitol. Um, He plays with a band called Northern Pikes now uh, in Canada, and he's a real like George Harrison understudy, you know, and I knew that George Harrison sort of that Beatle-y kind of thing had to be in play somewhere, So I asked Kevin if he would be interested in the songs that I picked for him to play. He played on two songs. Those are songs that definitely, you know, lent themselves to 12 string and kind of birdsy and kind of, you know, like Harrison-esque, you know, to the point where um, Capitol Hill, uh, one of the singles that he played on, um, I split the solo in half and had him play like single note guitar in the front half and lap steel in the back half, just sort of like Harrison would have done. You know and it worked out really good so those are a couple of folks that played on it uh, Bobby Adams from seven seconds um, you know uh, I got him on one of the ballads um, called I will too and you know a lot of people know Bobby as a, just like a shredding hardcore guitarist and he's like probably one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with in the studio but people don't know that he's like a very uh, versed uh, jazz guitarist and so I wanted him to play, you know, jazz phrasings over a ballad. I wanted him to do something that nobody has ever heard him really do, like recorded-wise, you know, over in a pop song, you know? And so I got him involved. So it was sort of finding folks like that, you know? Um, and then uh, on backing vocals, I knew I wanted sort of like a Beach Boys, you know, like a thick-layered thing. So uh, I got Mike Herrera from MXPX and uh, Stephen McDonald from Red Cross involved. And I basically already charted all the parts. They just had to kind of lay their parts down, like follow the guides and and, and lay their parts in. But that stuff came together really, really good. And back in the days when, you know, MXPX was recording and playing as a three-piece, and Yuri and Tom weren't doing any vocals – um, like on those, the Life in General record and on the um, Slowly Going Away of the Buffalo record, if we ever needed backing vocals or we ever needed like a second voice, I would do those parts. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's actually me that you hear like on those records singing some of the backup parts. Oh, nice. Um, where, where Mike's not doubling himself, but I always knew that Mike and my voice sounded good together. And um, so I thought, you know, I'll reach out to him and ask, would he be interested, you know? And, uh, and you know he was, and so I was really grateful for that. You know, I'd spent a lot of energy being supportive of the stuff that they've done. You know, so it was really nice to get that energy back. You know, and have him jump in and and uh, really throw himself into the work and 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 get stuff dialed so that it sounded it sounded great. You know, we didn't use any auto tune on the record. We didn't use <laughs> you know we didn't try to correct anything. You know, it is what it is, you know. Those are all the real performances, you know. And so, you know, you surround yourself with folks that you want to to have on your team, you know, and you know are going to knock it out of the park. And I just sort of chose carefully. There's a couple of songs where I ended up just kind of doing stuff myself, you know, Um, uh, out of necessity. And I took on a little bit more on a couple of those songs, but I'm happy the way they turned out. I don't consider myself a great you know, guitar player, like a lead guitar player, virtuoso guitar player. But these songs don't really need that stuff. These songs need simple, straightforward melodies. They need you to repeat the vocal melody on guitar. You know that kind of stuff. So it's not really about getting super, super noty. You know, like where it's noty, it's like guys like Wayne are playing noty stuff, like because they're good at doing that and it sounds good against you know the the template or the the background that I gave them to play against.
1: You know, and I think that's neat because I mean I I was impressed by the uh by the musicians you had on the album, but I really wasn't thinking about it before. It is cool because you really did kind of bring them in a light that a lot of them you really have never heard before. You know, you may not think of like power pop or like even like you were saying, like kind of that jazzy playing from like someone from Seven Seconds or, you know, from MXPX and stuff. Like I I didn't really think of that, but it's neat because Really, if you look at the list of guys, a lot of them are playing things that you've never really heard them play before, which, you know, that's that's really cool, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like some some of that stuff was done with some encouragement and some of that stuff was like, just let them go and see what they come up with. You know, Uh, Angelo Bundini, who's plays on a couple of tracks, is a, a guy that I met through the L.A. scene. And he kind of does that Bob. Bob Coyne, like Richard Lloyd, thing where he gets like outside and kind of plays, you know, like, you know, a little dissonant, you know, and I mm-hmm. knew he'd, he'd be a great fit. Um, the, when he came by the studio to drop some stuff down onto tape, you know, I kind of was pointing, oh, yeah, that there, stick that there, let's use that there. But at the same time, he was also like throwing out stuff, what about this, what about that? So, you know, the stuff that he came up with on his tracks, like he plays on Calendar Girl and he plays on Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears. Um those two tunes I'm really happy with the stuff that he that that he played on. Like Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears is sort of like a Neil Young and crazy horse kind of tune, you know? And he kind of gets to that place that that Neil does, you know, it's kind of hurting and kind of bendy and like a lot of single note like stuff that I like, you know?
1: And then for your I know you have played a few uh, live shows Is Stephen Bradley I mean when you when you got the live band together how was that taking Because, like you said you played I mean you basically played everything on this album that wasn't played by guests was it I mean was it easy to get the band you know to where you wanted them having other people play your songs or did that take a little time
2: Uh, I, I the way I did it was that I spent all the time working with the drummer really yeah, and making sure that he understood all the transitions and all the dynamics, and he's also singing backups, so got him focused on his parts. And so I had about five or six practices just with myself and drums until I was confident that he knew the songs inside and out, knew the uh, dynamics and transitions and where the fills were. Then we brought in a bass, brought in a bass player, brought in a keyboard player, kind of got things like, you know, add, added those guys after we had a roadmap. But I I couldn't – I wouldn't wouldn't have been able to bring four guys into a room or three guys into a room and just go, okay, guys, here's the songs and, like, let's play them.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Like, I don't think I could have – I just wouldn't have been able to pull it off, you know, like not as a band leader – uh you know being like sort of a band leader for the first time sorry that's too much pressure (laughs) (laughs) that's understandable Like, like taking taking it in little chunks that helped a lot and so um i ended up having richard lloyd play those couple of live shows san diego and la and really he'd been given the material like a month and a half before we played the show so he had time to rehearse and basically he had one rehearsal with with the band at oh, the wow. end of the night, and then we just went ahead and did the, the two shows, San Diego and the L.A. show. So um, I wasn't too concerned about him. He can pretty, <laughs> pretty much freeform it. and As long as he knows what key the song is in, he's going to come up with something in the spots where, you know, where it'll work out. I got a bunch of video from those shows, and I posted a couple little clips. But I'll, I'll post a little bit more over the next couple of months so people can kind of see – Uh, the band live on stage and jamming with Richard. It was really good. And I'm I'm glad that I did it. And I'm glad that we did proper album launch shows uh, that um, kind of just kicked the whole thing off the right way. You know, I've tried to do this, you know, like, like you'd want it to be done, you know, Mm -hmm. like proper press service, proper radio service, um, you know, a proper release show, things like that, just the smaller details that make getting a record off the ground, I think maybe a little easier to do, but I've been doing this for a long time. So I kind of know what the things are. It's just a question of making the list and then ticking them all off.
1: That, and I mean, that's pretty cool too, that I mean, like speaking of like, you know, we're talking about the guest musicians on the show or, or on the album. It's also pretty cool that, I mean, you got Richard Lloyd to play guitar, you know, in your yeah, band. For, for that's sure. that's amazing. For
2: and sure. uh, he was friend, friends of a friend and I reached out to him and said, you know, uh i got him on the phone and i was at a i was out with, on tour with another band doing some tech work and i was like at a truck stop in like wyoming or something like that <laughs> and so we stopped and i called him and i was like hey you know like i sent you over those songs you know did you have a chance to listen to him he's like yeah i'm like okay well <laughs> did you like any of the songs <laughs> and he's like yeah and he's like oh well that's good and then he goes well, I skipped over the bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so we both had we both just started busting a gut laughing. And um and working with Richard was great. Like he he basically knew what was expected, kind of knew didn't know the songs inside and out, but he knew enough to make it work. And uh, it was just nice to have a foil on stage, somebody that could cover those ground on those parts you know, it's just a lot to sing and play rhythm and come up, you know, some of the lead stuff as well. It's like a lot to do. So.
1: I can imagine. And, you know, yeah. I, I wanted to ask too, you know, like you're saying this is kind of your first go around with the, with the right. band. And I mean, you self-produced the new album. And what I was wondering, like, did you have to kind of find that balance for yourself as producer, as music and as a musician, you know what I mean? Like, cause you've been doing it so long as as being kind of the behind the scenes that it's like did you have to kind of you know balance yourself out and sometimes go okay you know am i thinking too much as a musician am i thinking too much as the producer you know you know what i mean
2: i think the production stuff just sort of is second nature at this point you know like i kind of know well you put that mic in front of that thing and that sounds good Uh, and you know the arrangement part part of it, I'd kind of worked through already. Like I kind of well, this will happen here, and then this is going to happen here. This is this is one of the things too, though, like about it taking so long to pull together is you gotta kind of write all the parts for all the instruments and practice them all and then perform them all. You know, it doesn't, it's not like you send four guy, four separate guys away and everybody comes back a couple of weeks later and goes, Hey, I got an idea for this. I got an idea for that. You know, like it yeah. all sort of comes together. You're kind of piecing the whole thing together piecemeal. I trusted that I trusted that my, my knowledge of production would get me to the finish line. I just kept going, okay, well just keep doing what you're doing. Do and like, that'll be okay. And then on the other side, the artist side it was like, okay, well, push yourself to write a better part, push yourself to sing that better, push yourself to play a guitar part there that you weren't really comfortable playing, you know, push yourself to... I think all the pushing really happened from the artistic side. You know, Mm. I think from the production side, like it was just more of a thing like, oh, well, yeah, okay, we're we're at that stage of the record where it's time to do this. So, yeah, let's do that. You know, it
1: sounds neat, too, because like when I'm what I'm kind of getting room too is it sounds like musically like you, you almost like picked up and learned a few things and kind of it's like making you, you know, like push yourself more. Like you were saying, like with guitar parts, you might not be comfortable with. And you're kind of pushing yourself to do that, which, I mean, is probably pretty neat because, yeah, I mean, the production thing, you know, I mean, you do know the production side. You've been doing it now. I mean, you've been a successful producer for so long that it's like, yeah, that part's like second nature. But it sounds like on the music, you know, musician side, it almost sounds like you're discovering, you know, new things about yourself.
2: Well, for sure. I mean, it's one thing to you know ghost sing vocals on other people's records. It's another thing to sit down and like write melodies for eleven of your own songs and teach yourself how to sing them.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, you I know? can imagine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like whoa, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know, I did take a few vocal lessons before I started, and followed some stuff online to give myself some guidance. But at the same time, I didn't want to rope things in too much i feel like people that can sing they're just sort of naturals you can either do it or you can't yeah and yes i yes i needed to teach myself like the finite you know part of it you know um like our mutual friend tommy stinson right like tommy's a a great singer you know Mm -hmm. tommy had to teach himself how to sing you know he He wasn't the front man of the replacements; he was the guy that was kind of yelping back up vocals, but when his solo records came out, he had to move front and center, like he took it seriously, and like you see his solo show now, dude, like he's singing to beat all hell, he sounds great, you know oh one of the, really one of the confident. best live
1: guys I've ever seen
2: totally, totally, but that didn't happen overnight. He worked at that. He worked to become that singer, you know he worked to become that front man,
0: yeah. Know?
2: So uh, I got a lot of respect for the guy, you know, and I think he's writing better songs than Paul is.
1: I would I would say, uh, I, I've always said post-replacement stuff, Tommy Tommy's put out the best stuff after the replacements easily. I mean, Bash and Pop, I would say Friday Night is Killing Me, best post-match release from any of them. And that last one, too, was killer. And that did. chris mars
2: record though is pretty good too though uh, oh chris Horses mars and hand grenades
1: oh yeah that, that, that he chris did like mars like one stuff. solo
2: record for mercury or something like that it's good man
1: no that's stuff i i play that on the show from time to time i mean they, they all have some good uh post-replacement stuff but yeah i think tommy easily has the best and uh what i wanted to talk about too i mean you have an amazing studio with hell's half acre so i mean i'm sure you use some great gear on the album and i'm always kind of interested in this kind of stuff i mean Some of the guitars and amps that you used on uh, Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears, what were they?
2: So, like, my core sound for my dirty rhythm or, like, my electric rhythm, Mm -hmm. um, I was running two amps uh, while I was tracking that. So it was, like, my Telecaster. I've got a 73 Tele, and I run that. I split that into two amps, one into a Fender bassman with a tube screamer in the front of it, through a 412 cabinet and then the other side was like sort of like the cleaner tone and that was a 73 marshall jmp through a four through a 412 cab and i'm using like like low wattage speakers like the basement's running through like uh, 15 watt speakers and the jmp's running through 25 watt speakers so the the amps are pushing the speakers and you can actually kind of hear them breaking up you know Yeah. Um, so that was like my core sort of dirty guitar sound for, you know, the whole, pretty much the whole record. And then, um, bass was, uh, sort of like uh, one side of, uh, I think I used my Marshall. I used the JMP Marshall and I used a DI. I was kind of doing like a clean dirty thing on that as well. Um, all my acoustic was just basically like my, my uh my 60s uh southern jumbo acoustic um and just trying to think of what there's a few other things that i used like the mandolin that i used um uh pretty like simple and straightforward like as far as the gear that i used for you know just my standard drum kit like tune standard um bass not not too much frilly stuff, just a P bass, like a, like a sort of the sound of rock, you know, a precision, the standard uh, a precision. Yeah. Yeah. Precision bass sort of using like the Marshall to kind of fake uh, an Ampeg SVT. It's kind of hard to fake, but you can do it if you, you know, get close enough. That was sort of like the core uh, of the gear that I was using. And then, you know, other people were working in their studios or set up different rigs for people if they'd come up um, just so that everybody would sort of have their own their own tones. And, um, and I did do some keyboard stuff myself. I have a, I have like a studio package, the IK IK multimedia studio package got like 19,000 sounds in it or something like that. (laughs) So I I used, yeah. So I used that for like some percussion stuff and tubular bells and some words piano um, stuff like that, you know, where I needed like just like little, Toy noises or hand toy stuff like and there's a lot of percussion in there too like i use tambourine i use hand claps i use shakers i use cabasas i use you know all those hand toys really help sort of move things along if you listen to like exile on main street like half the arrangement ideas on that record happen with percussion not with guitars or keyboards or bass you know (laughs)
1: See, that's the producer side of you. That, that's where you know those great secrets, right? I think it really comes in handy with making a record like this, where you kind of know, you know, those little things where people don't think about it, where they go, but that's the production side. That's what makes those albums sound so good. You know, it's
0: not For the sure. stuff that's it front. Helps, yeah, it
2: helps, it helps keep them fresh to the ear, too, knowing when it's time to change up. Like, okay, well. You know, you've got to do this here and do that there. But, oh, yeah, something's got to happen right here, you know, like just knowing that is half the battle because then you can quickly go, oh, we need to dial in a tone that's going to fit this part. Oh, we need to come up with something for that, you know, and if you're if you're sort of good at it, you can keep things moving along and get a lot of that accomplished without getting bogged down. You know, like I'm producing a record now for this tooth and nail band, Slick Shoes, who I worked with in the
1: 90s. Oh, nice. Great band. And and it's,
2: it's very, very like technical, like pretty like upbeat, like what we call, you know. Pop punk, I guess you know, but it's like it's it's they're they it's almost like making a pantera record right now, <laughs> like, working with these guys, literally it's like that it's that technical really um the playing the their playing level is that technical, and you're trying to do stuff and pull off that kind of stuff, but at the same time, you're trying to get different tones for different songs and different tones, you know, in within different songs. So here, plug this guitar in. Okay. Let's do this part with that guitar. Oh, let's try this here. Oh, let's stripe acoustic against that. Like, and if you're keeping moving along and keeping the ideas flowing, it keeps the guys energized, keeps things focused. And like, you, you can get a lot done. You know, this is actually a really fun record that I'm working on with them right now. We just, just kind of got the kibosh today. Cause the, the power went out. <laughs> that,
1: that's never <laughs> so, good.
2: No, no, it's not good, so we had to finish work early. Oh, that's a bummer. But, yeah, the studio, no, Hell's Half Acre still, like – Still going strong. Uh I bring a, you know, I bring a few bands through there every year. Uh was doing some stuff last year with Modern English, the uh oh, eighties nice. uh, post punk band. I cut a couple of new songs with them. Um, working on this new slick shoes thing, that last seven seconds record was done up at my place. There's always something going on there and I'm starting to use it more and more like for my own production. Uh, you know, as I'm gonna continue to do more writing I'll be using it for that as well. So the studio's still like a going concern.
1: You know, I mean, like, I I guess I didn't think about it before, but, like, do you ever have to change up your mindset? Like, is it ever hard? Like, you were just talking about, like, you kind of, like, with the Stephen Bradley record, you're kind of doing it, like, stripped down and trying to keep it as simple as can be. And then when you go in something else, like the new Slick Shoes record, you say, you know, it's kind of a different dynamic. Like, is that ever difficult? Like, do you ever have to get yourself in a different mindset? Like you said, like, if you're going from kind of making, like, a power pop record to doing something where it's like, okay, this is heavier. We're, you know, we're using different stuff. Like do you ever have to change your mindset or is it just kind of like you're used to that now? Just every band is different.
2: I think I'm for the most part kind of used to it now. Um, I think it's more a situation where you're just kind of attuned to what the client needs. And by that I'm saying, you know, what they need as far as like tones, what they need as far as support, what, is what they need as far as arrangement help. Like there's lots of levels where you can you can add your two cents, you know. Um, I think that it it is sort of second nature as far as okay, well, yeah, we need to knock the drums out, okay, yeah we need to you know work on these guitar parts now, like there's a process and there's a there's a a flow chart if you will to getting the record done so that is sort of written in stone, you know, but you're definitely thinking as you're coming into like working on like a slick shoes record, you're like, okay, well, yeah, we're not doing those cleaner open guitar tones like we do on the Stephen Bradley record we're doing like heavier crunchy modern you know tones and so yeah you yes you're you're changing your mindset as far as what you're looking for like what you're trying to get out of it but you know the path and how to get there and you know what stuff to sort of plug in to get you there pretty quick and so if you're doing that and keeping things moving along you're probably doing a good job
1: now, I also want to talk about, I mean, you are a very busy man. I mean, you, you have the Stephen Bradley record. I mean, you're, you know, you're a producer. You have Hell's Half Acre. And you also have Porterhouse Records, which the new record is on. And, I mean, yeah. you, you release new music, and you've put out some really cool, like, punk vinyl reissues. I mean, how did the label get started? When did you start doing Porterhouse?
2: I started doing it, like, in the late 90s. So it's been around, like, 20 years. Oh, really? Sort I of in, did not yeah, realize that. Yeah, sort of in various incarnations. And, like, it was always sort of, um, in the early days, it was just sort of trying to figure out how to be a record label, you know? Like, I'd always wanted my own imprint, like, I wanted the option to put out stuff on my own if I wanted to. But then, like, a lot of structure had to be built around that, like a distribution system, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and and public relations and, like, all this other stuff that has to happen, you know. So that label was around uh, a, a lot. It's been around for a long time. And it's kind of gone in fits and starts uh, until um, I really started I st- in 012 or so, I kind of took it over myself. There was a partner involved, and that partner left, and I started basically just like, doing my thing with it. And that's when I kind of started building more confidence with it, and was like, "Yeah, there's there's options here. There's cool stuff to do. And yeah, what what keeps the lights on is is vi- licensing stuff and putting it out on vinyl, like some of that classic punk rock stuff that I that I do." Um, And I'm always searching for new stuff, you know. Um, There have been a few baby bands that I've done over the years. There's a couple that were involved when the label first gets started. Those bands are like have moved on to other things or whatever. Uh, The stuff that I have like really like the core right now is myself uh, with the Stephen Bradley record, Chip Kinman from the Dills and Rank and File. I have... Uh, his project Ford Maddox Ford, which is sort of like a bl- glammed blues kind of project. Uh, they're doing some new music and we're doing a, a putting out a live record from them uh, this spring. And then uh, uh, another real active artist uh, that I just signed is a guy named Art Bergman and he's a Canadian uh, Juno winner. He was uh, involved in the indie scene from like the late 70s on through the 90s. Uh, was signed to the majors in Canada, won a Juno. Um, and I've just done a deal to pick up a bunch of back catalog from him and do some new releases with him. So I'm super excited about that. I've followed his career all my life, and he's a he's sort of like a... he's like uh, a, like a, some folks would kind of call him like a Canadian Paul Westerberg. He's more like a Paul Westerberg meets Leonard Cohen kind of thing. He's kind oh, of nice. dark. Yeah, so he's an excellent songwriter. We're gonna do some stuff for him this year. Release some uh, new stuff. Release some old stuff. Um, so yeah, the 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 label's in a good place right now. Um, there's been some some good reissues. Um, it's been able to support getting my record out. It's been able to support Chip. Um, we do most of the work in house. Like as far as. Uh, publicity work, PR stuff, uh, mail outs, everything pretty much. It's like a self-contained unit, you know? Um, and I've sort of learned over the years how to do that, um, cost effectively. And, um, and it's fun to do, like it it is fun to take on a record and figure out how are we going to market this? Or, um, you know, like Chip comes along, well, I want to do this. How do we get that done? Well, what about this? Or what about that? Like you can always make up sort of your, your path or your way to do things and it's just it's always a challenge you know when i first got to la and i was working at west beach i was talking with brett gerowitz and i asked brett oh what do you find more exciting like you know playing in your band or or running the label and he's like actually i'm like i like them equally (laughs) you know and i was like yeah i can i understand that i get that so maybe in a way he and i are cut from the same cloth in that respect
1: that's awesome, and it's good to hear that that it's going strong. It sounds like, and you have some uh, great future endeavors with it.
2: Yeah, so, definitely, there's good stuff happening for it this year. It's going to be one of our bigger years, so that's going to be good.
1: Oh, it's awesome, and I wanna I wanted to talk about I in mean, your producing career as well. I mean, as as it went with with whether the label or putting you know the new Stephen Bradley record out, it sounds like it's a lot of like you just jump in and learn. Now, is that like how you started producing as well? Did you just jump into it like?
2: Yeah, in a way, like there weren't really schools that you could go to back then, you know, so you're sort of learning tricks of the trade, and I was doing a lot of live stuff when I was a youngster, and so that kind of helped me figure out how things worked, you know, and I was able to apply some of that stuff in the studio, but I also had sort of a mentor that kind of helped me, you know, learn the ropes in the studio but the first studio that i ever like kind of really worked out of a lot was one that i built myself like a 16 track studio that i built myself
1: oh nice
2: um and so yeah when you're doing it sort of at that level you kind of learn like what works and what doesn't work and and um yeah, you learn you learn pretty quick. <laughs> a lot of like trial and
1: <laughs> error. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of trial
2: and error. For sure. Now it's at the point where, like, if people come to work with me, like, you know, they want to they want a good bass down together, and they want it together in an hour, you know, an hour or two. <laughs> You've got to keep things moving along, you know. But yeah, it's 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 a learning curve, and every day's a school day. I'm still picking up stuff like day in and day out.
1: That you know though is that is that a do you feel like that's a good thing? Like I feel like this this far in that you're still learning things. I feel like that's a good. It's much better than being like stuck in your ways or, you know, like like going the other way.
2: Oh, for sure, for sure. And that's the part about music that's that you can be eternally grateful for because you're never going to know it all. You're never going to learn it all. You're never going to be able to you know understand it all. Uh, It presents such a huge. Uh, A challenge uh, to educate oneself about that no one can hope to expect to, you know, take it all in within a lifetime. That's for sure. And that definitely is part of one of those things that keeps you going and keeps you coming back, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: The you know the very first album I think I ever heard that you worked on it would have been Blink 182s Two's Cheshire Cat and I know you engineered that and what yeah. I what I've always heard about is that the band had a really crazy small budget it was like recorded really quick like do you remember that being a stressful recording at all? That? Yeah, it was really
2: <laughs> tough because the label had just basically said, "Well, go to West Beach and record and mix the whole thing in 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 a weekend." Oh
1: and wow! It was like
2: and it was like there was 17 songs <laughs> that is a
1: long album that really is it's yeah, not a well, short all the record songs were
2: two, all the songs were 2 minutes long right uh-huh. but like just to try and do 17 songs in a weekend and end up and they didn't have really much in the way of gear you know <laughs> like so and i couldn't get i couldn't get anybody on the phone in san diego to go let's rent a guitar amp you know or let's like You know, we had it had such potential, you know, so we captured what we could the best we can, sent it back to them. And obviously they're like, oh, well, we need to do more work on this. Well, yeah, you do, because you can't (laughs) do a 17 song record in three days. (laughs) Um, So they ended up having to um, uh, track some more stuff down in San Diego and got a mix together and got it out. And um, it was kind of funny because I didn't hear anything more about that record, you know. And then one day I was driving down Melrose uh and i could hear one of the songs blaring out of his car next to us and i was like oh my god like that's that band that's that song from that band <laughs> and at this point the record had like started taking off and it already sold like a hundred thousand copies or something oh, like wow Like, like, Jeez. It was just, like holy mackerel <laughs> so yeah it was just ridiculous
1: <laughs> like, like was it that...
2: uh, but yeah sorry go ahead
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, like, was that pretty normal back then, getting these punk bands or labels or just kind of, like, he, like, unimaginable things like, here, make this work in two days. Like, like, here's, here's next to no money. We don't really have the best gear, but just make this work.
2: Yeah, I mean, you'd get some of that, you know, but you'd get it from both sides. You'd get some bands that would come in and, like they'd be like all prepared like have you know have good gear and like you'd they'd have a budget you know and then you'd also be working with folks that were just sort of like uh, well we're just trying to haphazardly throw this together and we'll see what happens so <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of both like when you worked at west beach you didn't really know like when a new client would show up you'd like open up the door for them you never really know how the day was gonna go <laughs> There were some days, man, where you'd just be like, oh, I just want to go back to the house and maybe (laughs) not be here here right now. But uh, a lot of good stuff came out of that room at at that era, you know, and uh, it was a great place to work, great place to learn, and it really was a super springboard for me as far as like – Starting my production career in the States, you know, I've been working in Canada and doing, doing some stuff up there, but not people, not a lot of people knew about those, those records.
1: And I mean, um, on, on the other end of production and like budgets and all that, you also worked with MXPX on their major, major label debut, slowly going the way of the Buffalo did you feel like there was added pressure? Because I've heard interviews with the guys from MXPX where they, where there was like, you know, they felt pressured because it was their major labor debut as a producer. Did you feel that as well? Cause you were with them before that working on life in general. Like, was there a difference in like, okay, like there's added pressure on this now there's, you know, you probably had a bigger budget. It's going to a major.
2: Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think that's natural, you know, um, you know, it, it, I think Mike was asking himself to write better songs. I think I was asking myself to make better records. I know Yuri and Tom were uh, asking themselves to perform at a higher level. I think everybody was trying to, 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 to definitely step it up, you know? And I'm sure that we, I think I'm sure, I'm sure that we were feeling it. I know we put in a lot of hours to try and make sure that we cover all the bases and done the best job that we possibly could. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that that was a real thing that we were really trying to, to take it to the next level. And I'm sure that we were all kind of feeling it a little bit.
1: <laughs> and you know, I, But I,
2: it's funny though, because, you know, I go back and I listen to those two records and like, you know, life in general just seems a little looser and more like, uh, it's a little trashier sounding or whatever, you know, but uh, um, slowly going the way the buffalo has definitely got like more shape to it more girth it sounds a little bigger they're two different animals like from the same producer and the same band but they're pretty two, pretty much two different records
1: now i gotta ask i mean was it whose idea was it on there i do notice because mike normally plays a stingray and on a buffalo if i'm not mistaken it sounds like he's playing a p-bass am i wrong yeah, on plays, that
2: yeah no 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 he plays a p-bass on that Oh okay. Um, I'm pretty much I'm pretty much a P bass guy. Um, like we're working on this slick shoes thing right now. There's like three there's there's three Ernie ball stingrays sitting in the corner on stands, and we're using an f a uh, p bass. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, just you the tone the, you can't uh, you can't beat the tone. You just can't. Yeah, we used a we used a we used a P bass for that record, and I think we might have used. I can't remember on uh, life in general, whether we might've used the music man, but I, I want to say that we used a P base. Uh, but yeah, I think like after that, Mike was using P bases. for Music Man's pretty much exclusively after that, and I know he's sponsored by Ernie Ball. So,
1: yeah, I was just um, wondering that because yeah, every, like I always associate Stingrays with him, but I, I'm slowly going the way of the Buffalo. I went, yeah, that doesn't sound as punchy as a Stingray. I was like, okay, I thought I thought that was a P bass, so I'm yeah, happy yeah. to know I was right.
2: <laughs> yes, you were. You were absolutely correct.
1: And you know, th- this is kind of a funny question because you obviously just self-produced your new record, but I mean, you you are a producer, so I, I, I feel like this is different. But do you feel like now, you know, bands, the accessibility to record yourself and self-producing, obviously that's become, you know, a much bigger thing. It's more accessible to do now. But do you feel like there's, there's something lost, you know what I mean, in people doing that where, like, it's accessible to everyone, but it doesn't mean that you're just automatically, you know, a producer per se, you know? Like, do you feel like that oh, takes gosh. away quality?
2: For sure. You know, I had a client I was working with last year and he had tracked a bunch of stuff with a couple of engineers, they didn't really know what they were doing and there was a bunch of mistakes made and it was stuff that you couldn't really go back and correct and here's this guy with this record and we're trying to do the best we can with what we've got and, and mix it but you know, it fell up short in a couple spots because there were some technical limitations because folks didn't really understand you know what they were doing and so there is uh something to be said for you know working with professionals that know how to make records (laughs) it helps you're saying that's it yeah but i mean we're in the era where everybody's got a laptop and everybody's a record producer and everybody's got a laptop so everybody's a film editor you know or a film director you know like it's it's great that we have the the flexibility to um um to record whenever we want to. Like this friend of mine uh, from uh, New York, she's just working on a a new project of her own. And she posted the other day, she's like, I'm doing my, I'm recording myself for the first time. Like, and like using the stuff I have and it's, I'm just going to do it and, and not, you know, use some dude, you know, like do all this work myself and then end up giving it to some dude, you know? (laughs) And, um, And so I wrote, yeah, right on, good. Like, that's what all this stuff is for. It is to work with and experiment with and learn from. And it's a lot of trial and error. And You know, we all make mistakes and we got to ask questions or ask friends. You know, like when Pro Tools came out, like Pro Tools was sort of a black art. You know, like (laughs) nobody really knew, like, what held it together. So there'd be lots of questions like, well, why, how do you get the scuzzies to talk to the Mac, like it doesn't work for me. Like, or my scuzzy's like, won't, you know, won't boot up right or something. Like it was always something, you know? Mm. And like, you'd be be calling, there was no internet, right? So you'd be calling people, dude, what did you do? Like, I don't know. Call this guy. I think he knows, you know, like, like that's what it was like trying to learn that learning curve, like coming out of analog and into digital. Um, And, you know, sort of even more has been lost because people don't really know, the analog techniques that were founded before digital techniques. Um, so some people are just kind of, you know, kind of going blind on it, you know, um, you know, obviously at some point, none of that analog stuff will exist anymore. You know, that's a sad thought. Yeah. We'll, we'll be a digital, we'll be a digitally based, you know, society, completely digital, digitally based society. I mean,
1: because there's something to say like you were talking – we were talking earlier about about the new album and some of those like little subtle things that you added in there where it's like those are things that I don't think the average person thinks of. Like those are, those are techniques and that is a skill that, you know, you being able to record yourself doesn't mean that you go, hey, you know, you layer this this way or if I throw this on here, it manipulates the sound of this. Like, you know – I feel like that's kind of lost now. You know, a lot of times... Yeah,
2: it... and, and I think, you know, folks that are working on their own will have to figure that out for themselves, you know? Like, mixing is a big part of that. Tracking is one thing. Mixing is a whole other thing. Like, when I moved down from Canada to California, I figured out how to track things and get good sounds, but I still wasn't a very good mixer. And uh, it's pretty quickly I realized, oh, you've got to, like, work on these techniques, and you've got to work on this and this, like, to kind of get it together. and So... Because I had experience, I was able to uh, take the information I was getting, sort of refocus, regroup, and, and move forward. You know, um, that's one thing too. When you're trying to do it at the commercial level, uh, and you're working in the, you know, as an engineer at a commercial studio, it's another thing. When you're like hacking around in your bedroom as a novice or as a, a, a part timer, like making a, you know, making a record because you feel like doing that right now. You know, like those are those are sort of different uh, they're different approaches i guess
1: yeah that makes sense i mean that totally makes sense sadly i don't know that everybody realizes that but i think i think that's absolutely true
2: i mean i I think that there's still like as people are doing a lot of tracking on their own I i still think there's places for you know skilled producers and engineers to work within that as far as like doing mixing stuff or you know, getting basic bed tracks done, like, you know, drums and stuff like that, where you're talking about a lot of inputs and phasing and where, you know, where you can end up causing yourself big problems if you don't do things right, right out of the gate, you know? So, you know, some 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 projects that I'll work on, people will just bring it to me and go, oh, could, could you mix this or... Uh, I'll start off a project. Oh, we just need some drums. Can you do that? And then they'll go to their house and work off their computers or stuff like that. You know, maybe bring it back for mix. It's, it's it depends on the client. Everybody's different.
1: And, you know, I wanted to ask you right now as someone who just put out a record, how do you feel about like distribution right now? It seems like a very like how music gets out there and everything just it seems it's not as cut and dry as it once was. Like, is it hard to navigate now how you put music out? Like, it's, it's just not as simple, it seems.
2: Um I don't know About that I mean I think that the avenues that we have For distribution are pretty much the same We have retail You know we have digital you know like iTunes And we have streaming Um streaming yeah okay That's new but even if you Look at that it's been around for what like Five or six years now
1: Yeah I guess it's not as new yeah
2: Um and so uh, I think that like iTunes was a big uh, leveler of the playing field. If you couldn't get your record into stores, you could get it up on iTunes and people could find the record somehow. Mm. So th- that kind of changed things a lot. And it kind of made it a little bit more egalitarian. Um, and when streaming came along and iTunes kind of took a backseat to streaming, well, then you're like in another situation Folks are getting folks are getting the music, but you're not getting compensated for it, like the way you would if you were selling records or selling down down downloads. Um, and that's super problematic. Like I'm, I've looked at the distribution numbers. I've looked at the numbers that come back from my own artists on my labels from streaming, and it's it's not good. No. And so um, I think it's more in this day and age. It's more about as, as like from say a label owner's point of view, it's important for me to le- leverage. Um, it's important for me to leverage all the different aspects of, of, uh, of distribution. Like I got to deal with the small mom and pops stores, like going in, taking them play copies, putting up posters for the artists, like in, in those stores, that's one proactive thing you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, from a streaming standpoint, uh, you can work on getting, uh, songs, you know, added to other people's playlists or stuff, stuff like that. So I was saying, like, as far as like on the Spotify kind of thing, like the the revenue is just not there, right? So you've got to kind of find ways to leverage that, you know. Um, for instance, like on my my new thing, uh, the Steam Valley record, I only put the three singles up on Spotify: the ballad single, the rock single, and the uh, the pop single. And I'm not putting the whole record up on Spotify. I'm hoping that if people hear it on Spotify, come over to the website and check it out and maybe buy a copy
1: you know i like that idea i wonder like i wonder if more people kind of go that way because i don't you never hear uh musicians and rightfully so no one's really satisfied with spotify and the way right. it's running so i kind of like your idea of here you know here's a couple songs and right. then it's like come come to the label where it's like that you're releasing it like come straight to you know the source like Where you're going to, the artists are going to be compensated, you know, much more fairly than, I mean, because really, I've never heard a musician who's happy with the way Spotify works. No one, no one but Spotify is happy with the way that Spotify works, it seems.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's sort of the model we're stuck with right now. So we're going to have to deal with that. One of the ways is, you know, doing vinyl, selling vinyl ourselves. Um Doing small DIY stuff. Like, that's how I think artists can help themselves. Uh, Using the YouTube, leveraging the YouTube. You know, like, I'm doing videos for all the songs on my record um, because I feel that that's, I can get, I can get, though, I can launch those videos through publications. I can get Twitter followers to find out about the record if I keep putting out videos, you know? But there's only so many publications that are going to write about you, you know? There's only so many relevant publications. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's the distrib- it's half distribution, it's half marketing really, you know, and the, and the way that you work those two things together.
1: Very nice. So, I mean, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, you just put out the new Stephen Bradley record, you know, what, what else are you working on right now? You know, what, what else can people expect from you this year?
2: Um, basically like the next few months is going to be focused on, on, on continuing to push the Stephen Bradley record, like getting that out. Uh, doing more videos, doing more podcasts, talking to people about it, doing interviews wherever I can. Uh, I'd like to do some more live shows um, to keep it going uh, on that respect as well. Uh, I've been trying to connect with some of the musicians I was working with in the fall on that to see if we can get something going. Um, And then continuing to start uh, writing new stuff myself should hopefully form uh, a, a new record, Uh, Sometime in the future, maybe another year down the road, you know, a year and a half down the road. But I've got enough to do on this record right now uh, to support it, you know, as far as, you know, impressing videos and stuff like that to keep me busy through most of the year. Um, Another little pet project that I'm working on is like some older stuff from one of my old Montreal bands, a band that I played in called Los Patos, which means the Ducks.
0: Oh nice! And
2: uh, that's uh, uh, features a guy named Alex Soria, who used to have a band called The Nils, who some people might remember from the old days. But you, uh, if you don't know The Nils, Tony, you need to check out The Nils.
1: I, I'll have to listen to them. I've heard the name, I've never heard them
0: though.
2: So you would like, yeah, you would like that stuff. It would definitely be, it would be up your alley. So yeah, uh, working on some old tracks from that that I'm resurrecting, working on some new writing, working on the label. Um, just
1: keeping busy, man. <laughs> it's you. You do. I mean, you stay busy with your with your stuff. There is there. Is, you're always doing something, which is a good thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But, I I I can't do I can't do anything else. I can't see it any other way. You
1: know. And I mean, this is this is kind of going into the future a little bit. But I mean, when you when you do eventually get to the second Stephen Bradley record, I mean, do you feel like you're going to kind of do it the same way, like kind of write the for the bulk of it or basically all of it yourself, and then kind of have guests come in and you know. Kind of add their flair to it, but I mean, do you, do you feel like going on? You are, you know, Stephen Bradley. You are the, you know, you basically are the one man. I guess one I man band. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. I think it's, I think it's the way to do it. Uh, at this point, you know, it's hard to bring on other people because you've got to compensate them. You know, where does that stream of revenue come from? Um, the other thing too is when you're kind of piecing it all together yourself, you can, uh, you can basically arrange things the way you hear them the way you want to hear them you know and that was a kind of cool thing the way that I did it was when it came time to show the other guys their parts well your parts are already defined for you here they are you're playing this stuff here hey you dude you're playing this stuff here you're playing this stuff here so at least that way it's taken out of the, the, the equation. You don't have to, like, walk through everybody through everything. It's just like, there's the parts, learn them, and we'll see you at band practice.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, that makes sense. That seems like, yeah. yeah, that would push things along a lot more than having to – you have to hope the other three people are, you know, are doing their part and kind of, you know, picking up their slack. But, you know – Yeah, what,
2: yeah, yeah. You're just you're, – well, you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to lay out a roadmap for them so that they – to help them be successful.
1: And it seems, I mean, too, like, to your credit as well, I feel like you have to be at a certain place as a musician and as a producer as well to be able to do that, to go, this is the vision I have in my head, and you can get it out there with other people. You know, you can, you can go, hey, man, this is what I want it to sound like. This is what it is. And to be able to do that is, you know, that's a talent in itself because, yeah, that's not – I feel like you have to be musically comfortable in everything to be able to do that and kind of get the Oh, no, visions. no, for
2: sure. Yeah, for, for sure. And, like, when you're dealing with not only in the studio but dealing with a band live and putting together a band live and walking them through the stuff, like, there's a, there's an approach to that and how you're going to deal with those folks and how you're going to deal with, you know, not everything's going to work out right. It's not going to sound exactly the way you want it to. Like, you've got to control your own expectations as well, right? And you've got to pick your battles. Okay, that's worth discussing. That other part, that's not worth discussing. You know, like, like that's... That's stuff that you kind of learn. I think there's some people that can be – that that have those smarts and have done it, like, you know, at an earlier age. But I'm glad that I did this stuff a little bit later when I was a little bit more mature, a little bit more measured, a better communicator, and had a little bit more patience. I think it's made things less stressful, and it's been more fun to do. And a big part of doing the whole Stephen Bradley thing was I wanted to have some fun.
1: Well, I mean, I like I like what came out of it. I think we got a great record. And where can people find you? Where can people get the Stephen Bradley record? I mean, like I said.
2: Yeah, so if people want to pick up the record, uh, the the LP comes with, uh, the the vinyl LP comes with a download code. So if you want to order that, you can go to porterhouserecords.com and uh, just click through the record store. You'll see it there. Uh, and a couple of clicks and uh, and it gets mailed to your house. It's available on iTunes. The, st- the singles are st- streaming on Spotify. So the, the product's around. It's at the usual suspects. And uh, it is uh, with national distributors. So if you're somewhere in America and you shop at a mom and pop shop, your local record shop, you can ask them to bring in a copy for you and they'll get it in for you.
1: I like that. That's, you know, you can still go in and get a physical good. I like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know, like you were saying, some of the analogs going away. So, I mean, That's it, man. you know.
2: I, I still want to be able to drive out and get my hamburger.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, you need, you, not everything should be digital. but uh, Absolutely. You know, so it's been great talking to you on here. We're going to obviously play some uh, Stephen Bradley now. And we're going to open it with probably my favorite song off the album, and uh, I, I credit that jangly guitar. You got you got it just so well. And I don't feel like like everyone gets that tone down. We're gonna play preemptive strike right now, right here on the Power Chord Hour.
0: Woo-hoo. Dates mixed up, but no one much seems to care. You see, I was never very good regarding seasonal affairs. In a December to remember...
1: Right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast, that was a nice little block of Stephen Bradley for you. Off his debut solo album, Summer Bliss and Autumn Tears, that was Calendar Girl. Before that was Loose Ends. Before that was Love Tumbles Into Obsession, the opener off the record. And uh, opening up that block of music was Preemptive Strike. And all of those are off Stephen Bradley's new record. you got to go check that out. And I hope you enjoyed the uh, interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. That was so much fun talking to Steve. I've uh, I've, I've talked to him online for like... I mean, probably almost a decade, if not a decade at this point. I mean, I guess it would probably have to be because I remember asking him, like, production questions when I was, like, in high school. So, yeah, I've probably, I've probably like, been talking to him on, on uh, you know, just, like, social media and stuff probably since, like, 2010. And he's always been a really, really good dude. And uh, it was awesome to finally, like, talk to him, you know, talk to him, talk to him. On the phone, and it, it, it was just such a blast. We got to have him on again. I mean, that that interview could have went on for another three hours. Honestly, I mean, I was just scratching the surface. There's so much. I mean, more about his production career, stories about albums that he's worked on. I mean, just more about. His, I mean, his musical path. I mean, his his upcoming plans. I mean, just even more on the new record. Um, I mean, more on Porterhouse Records. His, I mean, Hell's Half Acre. Everything we talked about in there, we could have talked about even more. I think, and uh, we probably will at some point. I'm sure we'll have him back on, and uh, hopefully, hopefully too, when he has his next uh, Stephen Bradley record. I can't wait. I know this one just came out, but uh, you know, when the second one comes out, I'm going to be just as stoked because I really, really like this one. Um if you heard if you heard podcast two where I was talking about my uh, top ten favorite records of two thousand and nineteen, that is on there, so I talk all about uh why I like that record so much. And uh, you can probably hear my enthusiasm in this interview. I mean, I really, I really do like that album, and I like uh, you know, kind of hearing about the nuts and bolts of it, and you know, kind of what goes into recording. I always think that stuff's interesting, and hopefully, you do as well. Um, I try to keep it to a minimum. I know, like gear talk. Whenever I talk to people, I like to know what they use when they record, and I try to keep that like you know within a few. Kind of within a couple minutes because it's like I realize like some people are into that and then other people are like, I don't know what the hell, you know, a dual rectifier is, nor do I care. (laughs) So, you know, I don't don't know that everyone cares about Gear Talk, but I do. I love that stuff and I hope you do as well. And uh, if you're not following us on social media, I would love if you did. And also go follow Steve Kravick. And uh, he is on all basically you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And you can find him under Stephen Bradley. And, I mean, go check him out, Um, He is also hellshalfacre.com, porterhouserecords.com, has a couple websites go check out. And uh, like he said, you can you can buy the record from uh, porterhouserecords.com. And uh, so, yeah, once you do all that, also go give us a follow. We're on social media at Radio. On uh, YouTube you might be even listening There right now so it's funny to say that I'm used to saying that on the uh, radio Show and I forget on here that uh, You may very well be listening to This on YouTube so probably don't have to plug The YouTube page well if you're there Go hit that subscribe button while you're listening To me right now and I, I beg Of you hit that <laughs> hit that subscribe Button under here and uh, But yeah we're on Twitter Instagram Facebook we're on Spotify we're on uh, SoundCloud You can email me PowerCore. At gmail.com. I have some Power Chord Hour t-shirts and guitar picks totally free. Just hit me up and I'll send them to you. And uh, yeah, I mean, thank you uh, so much for listening to this. I really do hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, give us a follow and uh, give Steve a follow by his new record is really, really good. And uh, I mean, if for whatever reason, you've never heard some of the records that we were talking about that he's uh, produced and engineered, go check them out. I mean, you know, I mean, Blink 182, MXPX, Less Than Jake. I mean, Tsunami Bomb. I'm sure you've heard all these bands, but if you somehow miss some of these records, and go look through your record collection, I bet you're going to go look through liner notes and go, "Damn, that guy I just listened to. He produced this record. He engineered this record. Like he he knows what he's doing. You know, he is a he is a, a bona fide musician, bona fide producer, engineer." All that good stuff, and uh, it was such a blast talking to him. I'm so happy this finally got to happen. I've wanted to talk to him for a long time, even before the uh, album came out. I mean, just as a fan, and it's kind of like, you know, I like to have something. I like people to be able to promote something, you know, if you're going to have them on. So, uh, you know, it was great when the new album came out because it's like this record is not only good. It's like I want to talk to this guy anyways, but it's like he just put out a good record, so it's going to be easy to talk about it. You know, it's not like a thing where it's like, well, I really like, you know, this you know i like his production but it's like i'm i'm not a fan of the record and it's like it's it's totally not like that where it's like oh well you know you have to bite your tongue because you want to talk about this it's like no it's, it's nice and easy because i'm a i'm genuinely i love this record that he just put out and I also love all the records he's worked on so i mean really a no-brainer to have him on total blast to talk to him so i hope you loved it as much as i love talking to him and uh that is going to be it you know check back uh for the next Power Chord Hour podcast Should be uh, very, very soon And if you need your other fix of the Power Chord Hour We do have the weekly radio show Totally different from this I spin you a bunch of music Still talk to you But I play you tons and tons of music on that I probably fit like I mean, I play lots of punk and alternative Lots of fun, short, fast, and sweet songs So, I mean, in an hour I get to talk to you a bit Get to... uh Give me music news and all that good stuff. And I also play like 14 or 15 songs. So we cram a lot in there in an hour. And uh, commercial free as well. So no commercials. You tune in and listen to that. You get me for the whole hour. And uh, that is on 107.9 WRFA in Jamestown, New York. But you can also listen to that on the uh, station's website at WRFALP.com. And uh, also on the 107.9 WRFA iPhone app, you can go download that in the app store, stream the station there. Listen to me with the uh, Power Chord Hour Friday nights at 10 Eastern on there. And also just listen, we power, uh not Power Chord Hour, WRFA is a really, really rad radio station. We play so much cool stuff on there. And... Uh, well worth checking out, not just my show. So also check that out. And yeah, check back here for the next Power cord Hour podcast. But until that podcast, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thank you very much for checking out the show.